This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, Chris, and Pat. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with John Berger. John is a journalist and is the author of Datanomics, How Dating Became a Lopsided Numbers Game. During our conversation, John talks about the demographic data regarding college-educated men and women in America, how sex ratio differences in colleges and cities influence dating and mating behavior, the effect of Me Too on modern romance, dating apps, assortative mating, evolution's effect on human mate preferences, and how the significant sex ratio difference in China seems to have led to an increase in criminality. There are millions more young, college-educated women than men in the United States. The educational and career success of women in America is a triumph of our society. Yet inevitably, many such women will have difficulty finding a partner at their achievement level. This is a largely unforeseen modern phenomenon, and one that I think should be taken seriously. John and I have some clear disagreements on subjects we discuss, including a disagreement about the precariousness of the situation and its likely outcome. Regardless, his book is crucial in understanding the reality of the situation. And in his new book, Make Your Move, he makes suggestions that single people, especially women, may want to know about and to keep in mind. I hope you enjoy this conversation with John Berger. John Berger, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Great to meet you. Welcome to the show. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. I always like to start conversations with getting background info about the subject that we're, we're going to touch on today, which is dating and modern dating. I've heard you speak about this in prior conversations as well about what got you interested in writing the book in the first place. But I, I'd love if you can to have you share that story. How did this even start from your perspective? How'd you get so, interested in the subject? So Dan, you, you think it's odd that a former Fortune magazine writer <laughs> ended up writing dating books? That doesn't make perfect sense. <laughs> slightly off, slightly off. Slightly a little bit of curiosity there. Yeah. Um, so Actually, the answer to this has a lot to do with my work, my former workplace at Fortune magazine. Um, I, I, I couldn't help but notice that, at least among the editorial staff, uh, most of the men, most of the guys at Fortune were either married like myself or involved in long-term relationships, whereas the women of Fortune, who I think I can safely say probably had a lot more going for them dating wise than than we guys did. Um, They were disproportionately single and unhappily single. And the ones I was friends with, the women at Fortune I was friendly with, um, they would share with me these dating stories, these dating horror stories that really made no sense to me as somebody who got married in my mid-20s. And I didn't understand how somebody who had everything going for them could be having such a miserable experience 
in the dating world. And th that's what, what led to my first book, Datanomics. Um, and Datanomics is more, you know, it was more pop science than a, than a advice book. It kind of explored how lopsided gender ratios among the college educated have affected post-college dating. So for the past 20, 25 years, we've had about one third more women than men graduate from college. And this has created kind of a, a lopsided environment post-college. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the, I mean, that's the short version. I mean, I, I kind of viewed the first book as, you know, a, a different kind of economics, like looking at how supply and demand in a market and I believe dating is a marketplace, um, how it affects dating outcomes. So, so that's the, that's the backstory. Yeah. I think it is a very helpful way to frame what dating really is, which is there is no doubt, um, a marketplace effect on, you know, one's prospects and in one's environment. I want to read a quote from datanomics to kind of set the table for sure. some of the census information that, that you were um, reciting in the book. And this is from you. According to, to 20, 2012 population estimates from the U.S. Census Bureau's American Community Survey, there are 5.5 million college-educated women in the U.S. between the ages of 22 and 29 versus 4.1 million such men. In other words, the dating pool for college graduates in their 20s really does have 33% more women than men, or four women for every three men. Among college grads, among college grads, grads aged 30 to 39, there are 4.7 million women versus 6 million men, which is five women for every four men. Now I know this is a macro analysis of America, and I think yeah. you know you you go into different kind of subcultures within the country in terms of what the the numbers look like. I used to live in the Bay Area, and <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't know this nickname prior, but the phrase "Man Jose" for the tech center that is the the Bay Area. I think probably a little bit more in San Jose, maybe than San Francisco, but. You could feel that as a single man being in that environment. I just told you before the conversation, I'm now in New York City. Talk about what you have learned about what the difference is between just as, a, as two anecdotes, those two different cities as an experience as a, a single man or a single woman. So, so I, I mean, both anecdotally and there's actually a lot of of scientific research on how sex ratios affect human behavior, but it, it all, you know, it, it all ends up in the same place. And the, the, the takeaway is that when men are in oversupply, um, women are more choosy. The dating culture is more monogamous and more traditional. Whereas when women are in, are in oversupply, which is what you find in New York versus the opposite in the, in the Bay area. Um, when, when women are in oversupply, um, men are more likely to play the field, so to speak. The dating culture is less monogamous. Divorce rates are higher, etc. And, you know, a key 
argument in my first book, Datanomics, was that the rise of the hookup culture in the 2000s and early 2010s had very little to do with porn or Facebook or anything else that modern scolds uh, like to blame. It was largely a byproduct of these lopsided gender ratios among college grads. Now, now to be fair, this wouldn't matter at all if we were all more open-minded about whom we date and eventually marry. But the reality is the college grads tend to want to date and marry other college grads. Yeah. This is one of the big reasons why I wanted to talk to you because from my vantage point, you know, you go into data from other countries and I had known since I was a kid information about China and the potential serious really civilizational risk that a place like China might be facing with the demographics in that country where there are millions and millions and millions more men than there are women. And what that can mean when you have inevitably, if it is a monogamous culture, millions of single non-mating, non-dating men who are just lingering around. And it didn't occur to me that something akin to that might be possible in our own country. And I think your book tries to approach what the reality is and attempts to explain the situation in the country. How do you think about that as a, as a risk factor for, for America specifically, maybe what, what do you think are the the real challenges given the, the data that we've already talked about during the. Okay. Can I start with China, please? So, I, I I think whether or not you consider it, consider it a risk really depends upon your vantage point. Mm. If you're the parent of a young man in China, or if you're a young man who's single and struggling with being single, it's an enormous risk. It's a creation of frustration and sadness. Mm. Um, if you are a government official or a economic planner in China, you may have a very different view of this because the the latest research on this, um, and I cite one of these studies in Datanomics, it was from a, a, Columbia, a Columbia University professor. I mean, he found that that I I don't I don't have the passage in front of me, but I, I think he concluded that ten to twenty percent of the GDP growth in China over the past twenty years was a byproduct of men having to compete harder for women. And men having to earn more and uh, be harder working in order to compete for a wife. Now, that's, this may sound very Machiavellian and kind of harsh, but from an economic standpoint, it's pretty likely that the shortage of women in China has been good for their economy. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not justifying any of the horrors that that created um, the shortage of of women in China. Everything from the one-child policy to infanticide, to be to be frank. Yeah. Um, but the byproduct um, has been probably a stronger economy in China. So I, I wonder, I, I don't know any government officials in China, but I do wonder if they view this as a negative. Um, I hope they do, but I'm worried they don't. Um, as for the U.S., I'm, 
I guess I'm always, whether it's China or here, I am a little reluctant to pass grandiose like moral judgments on the state of the culture. So let's say the the byproduct here is that um, women are harder working which is which is one that you know, similar you know the parallel of China is that the research shows that when men are in undersupply, um, women tend to be more focused on earnings and career because they know they may have to go it alone as a as a as a parent. Um, and in so another byproduct may be that men get married later or or don't get married at all and are more likely to play the field and the whole romantic culture is more libertine and i i i I'm really careful not to portray myself as a giant defender of the institution of marriage. I don't believe marriage is for everyone. And I think it's okay if your people opt for marriage, but I do think there's some, there's a real value in kind of shedding or, you know, exposing this problem to sunlight. So if you are a marriage minded woman, who somebody who puts a high priority on marriage, I think there's real value in being aware of what's going on demographically and making choices accordingly. But I'm I'm not so willing to go so far as we're heading towards some cultural meltdown because there aren't enough college grad men. Although, although at the same, I mean, I would like our educational system to fix some of the problems, some some of the boy problems in our school, in our schools. But I, 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 I don't see some catastrophe if 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 the if the current situation continues. Yeah. I my my take on your reading, and you, you alluded to this already in the conversation about former coworkers who were having horror stories and a hard time in the dating market, and they seemed bewildered. They couldn't quite make sense of what was happening. And I think your your book and others I j- seem to provide a very good reason as to an explanation. Again, without any moral attachment to the outcome necessarily that it, it is an explanation that I think a lot of people would agree makes a lot of sense. There's something I, I want to bring up that I think is also in datanomics. And at least I've heard you speak about this. This is, this is related to China and giving the caveat that it, this may not necessarily be the direction of the United States, but it is something that appears to be true about China is the effect of their dynamics their demographics on criminal behavior. And ironically, my understanding in, in researching for this conversation was that the one of the only criminal behaviors that seems to have declined is sexual assault. Um, speak yeah, to that, if you can, about what you've learned related to that. Yeah, I almost feel like I, 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 I'm glad it was in the book, but at the same time, I felt like I phrased it to um, matter-of-factly, maybe there should have been a trigger warning of some sort um, because I didn't... There were some stylistic aspects of datanomics that I wish I had handled (laughs) a little differently, and and this may be one of them. But but the research shows that that when men are in oversupply, um, when there are too many young men, essentially, um, rates of criminality increase. And, And I think 
on a macro level, I think we kind of understand that because, you know, men are more, you know, if you look at our, our prison systems, there are way more men than, than women, you know, who are incarcerated. So you would think if there's more men, there's going to be more criminality. But in China, the, you know, the, the, the only type of crime that declined as the sex ratio skewed increasingly male was sexual assault. And academics who've studied this have concluded that's because um, when women are scarce, men value their women. And I, I'm putting there in bold uh, just to sort of emphasize the crassness of it. Um, but men, men, um, men protect their women more, and um, and the pun and the the consequences for mistreating women uh, become harsher. Um, and basically, women are put on the pedestal um, when they are in short supply. And again, this sounds. A little coarse and unpleasant and I'm not saying this is the way the world should be um but it is it seems to be the way the world is yep. so so to, to your point yeah um th this seems to be one of the byproducts in in china and i am you know that one of the books i draw on in datanomics was the, the book Too Many Women by Marsha Gutentag, who is a Harvard psychologist. And I am very confident that if Marsha Gutentag had been alive today, she would see a direct connection between the rise of the Me Too movement and the behavior of men exploiting these, these unbalanced sex ratios leading up to Me Too. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think we'll... I want to later in the conversation go into ideas that might be able to, you know, change some uh, people's decision making, or at least give you know men and women something to think about in terms of the way that they might think themselves about dating and mating as they move forward. But as you said, I think at as a baseline, it helps to as best we can address reality in what is happening. And I know one of the issues that you talk about in the book is assortative mating. Assortative mating, yeah. Assortative yeah. mating. And it might be helpful to give an explanation as to what exactly that means. And, you know, I always tend to view things through an evolutionary lens as much as I can when I don't understand what is happening. And if, if you can add a twist to this, as best you can. I, I know you know David Busser. I have talked to him. David's been on the show. Um, <laughs> yeah, he probably didn't have nice things to say about me. <laughs> so. What maybe just to start? What is assortative mating? What what is that? Well, let me, I mean, let me start with David Buss. I mean, yeah. I I met him at a at a dating conference seven eight years ago, and I was in the process of writing datanomics, and I shared with him some of the ideas in the book, and he told me he believed that you know at the, at the time there were you know one third more women than men graduating from college. I believe for the class of 2024, yeah. um, there will be 50% more women than men graduating from college in the US. And Dr. Buss's argument that those, I think this, these were his words, these excess women will, will never marry because they refuse 
to date somebody who's less educated than them so that we'll have this kind of permanent um population of never married educated women and never married non-college men uh, i i strongly disagree with this notion i mean i mean that may be the world we look at now but i think it's kind of i mean i even though i'm a numbers guy i'm kind of a romantic at heart and i have to believe that that there are a lot of really wonderful matches that will eventually be made between electricians and lawyers and cops and doctors and things like that, that, that you, you will see. And I think we're already seeing it, particularly in the African-American community. We're already seeing a rise in what I call um, mixed collar marriage. So, so just, just to circle back to your point about assortative mating, that's basically just a fancy way of saying that the people like to date other people just like them. Yeah. Um, and when it comes to education, the the takeaway is the college grads only want to date and marry other college grads. And, and as I said, that, that has been the trend at the same time that the college gender ratio has been skewing female. This trend towards a sort of mating has become has become more more fixed. But I I, I do see indications that that things are turning around a little bit. Um, you know, women at this point are much more likely to be married to non-college educated men than college educated men are to be married to non-college women, which I think kind of, I mean, there's this notion out there that guys will marry any hot girl who comes along, like the, um, the, you know, the, the heart surgeon will marry the cocktail waitress if she's pretty enough. Yeah. But but that is not the there's no evidence of that. Um, women are much more open-minded when it comes to the education of their partners than men are. Men are the picky ones when it comes to education. In in practice, right? And I think about my grandparents and my great-grandparents and what their dating and mating options were 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 75 years ago. And it was just such a different world where you know, your immediate vicinity often was what was available to you. And with that came much fewer options and probably, I would imagine, less assortative mating where yes. mapping mapping marriage onto, you know, what, what I, I think are pretty universally agreed upon are the desired characteristics, slightly different for men and women and, and what they're looking for in their partners, attractiveness, intelligence, um, other areas of compatibility were just not available. And it seems that, you know, as time has gone on, my parents met in college, that seems to be culturally incentivized and encouraged to, to certainly wait until at least that age. What is the story of what has happened in the US in the last roughly 75 years and in, in how things have changed in, in options that people have in terms of who they're going to end up with? So, so I think there's a relationship between what's considered culturally acceptable and culturally appropriate, you know, what your parents experience thinking, well, of course, I'm going to marry somebody who's also educated. And I think there's a connection between that and simple logistics. So, so I think, Dan, you, you told me that you used to live in Austin, Texas, and now you live in, in Brooklyn. I, 
I'm guessing in your just just in your physical neighborhoods, what percentage of the people you live amongst you think went to college? I would say 80% or above. Yeah, probably more like 90, I bet, right? And, yeah. and particularly in Austin, the ones who didn't graduate from college were probably people who dropped out just to make money, right? Like they work in tech, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so I, I think there's a there's a logistical aspect to this. So your grandparents um, probably lived in more socio socioeconomically integrated communities in which maybe everybody went to the same church. Some people were educated, some people were plumbers, some people were doctors, but they all went to the same church or lived in the same neighborhood. Um, that's not the case these days. I mean, if you, if you look at the data, uh, we have become geographically much more um, divided when it comes to socioeconomics. And, you know, a, a big theme of my new book, Make Your Move, is to date people you actually know. Mm. Um, but it's kind of hard to date people you you know from different backgrounds if you never really rub elbows with them, right? I mean, if you're if you don't if you're not exposed to people from different backgrounds, it's kind of hard to get to know them. So I, I mean, to me, this is one of the big challenges today. But and, and I think the 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 trend towards a towards a sort of mating has as much to do with with logistics and de- and demographics and 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 how kind of segregated socioeconomically and racially our our world has become as it does with romantic preferences yeah there's a quote that uh, another interviewer that i saw made during a conversation you were having with him about really the economics of of dating and how much the local environment affects behavior. And the quote is this, it's almost as if human mating strategy responds to its local ecology. There's another subject that I know you talk about related to dating in modern times, which is the Me Too movement. And there's another quote that I want to I read out that I think this was a someone you knew about who was writing a study and was quoting somebody who was on college campus saying the following, Men used to worry about being rejected. Now they worry about being labeled a predator. What has the effect been in your mind? There's obviously already an imbalance here, right? I mean, you give examples of what it's like to be a straight man at Sarah Lawrence College, which is, I think, something like 75% women. When you add in the Me Too movement and what's happened in the last you know, five years related to the dynamic between men and women, how do you think that has, has played into uh, the challenges of, of people mating and dating in your judgment? Well, let me circle back to the quote and both to give credit and to give some context. Um, The person who said that is Brian Howie and Brian is a friend and he's also, he's kind of a um, kind of part comedian, part, showman i mean he, he he's he's the producer and creator of a traveling i guess you'd call it a 
half comedy show, half town hall on the state of modern dating. It's called The Great Love Debate. And, and Brian does these great love debate shows kind of all over the country, you know, several times a week. Um, you know, he has hundreds of singles showing up to these events. And the context of that quote is that he really noticed, like after the, the beginning or the, the breakout of the Me Too movement, that um, the, the dialogue, the back and forth, on, at these shows became much more contentious. But what was interesting about what Brian said is that the, the most sort of difficult, you know, the, the, like the, the most uh, heated arguments weren't between men and women. Mm. They were between women and other women. And there was this one group of women who didn't want a large group of women who considered basically any come-ons for men to be sexual harassment and didn't want men talking to them or hitting on them in any way. And there was this other large group of women who were petrified that men would just stop trying. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, I think for a while, Brian was getting anxious just from a business perspective about what was going to happen with his show, because it was this, he was kind of locked in this repeat loop of conversations that, that never led to any resolution. Um, and so, so that's the, that's the context. And personally, I don't think, I don't think there's anything wrong with men being way more cautious. And I actually, I mean, a big argument in my new book, Make Your Move, is that a lot of the dating advice that women have relied on over the years, you know, was misguided. So, so, so if, you, if you look at most of the traditional dating books, or the best-selling dating books that have been written over the past 20 years, books, you know, that, you know, it's a whole genre that began with, um, the, you know, the rules and kind of went to like, ignore the guy, get the guy and why men love bitches and all, all these books that basically boil down to the premise that, um, that, that the only way to get a guy is to play some complicated version of, hard, of playing hard to get. And look, Maybe that worked for your grandparents or for my grandparents. I, I, I never dated in the 1940s. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what dating was like back then. But the, the underlying assumption of playing hard to get is a notion that um, not interested means keep trying. Right. A notion that if a woman, you know, seems to be standoffish at a party and doesn't really want to talk to you, she's playing hard to get and you got to keep at it. And I think it's a good thing that men are realizing, you know what? If she doesn't want to talk to you, that probably means she doesn't want to talk to you. (laughs) And uh, and it's not it's not a good idea to keep at it. Um, and, and I think most, the overwhelming majority of women are actually pleased with men who've realized this. But I think that there are some dating book authors and dating book fans, fans of the rules who are still waiting for men to kind of um, to pursue and pursue and pursue, even if they're not giving, even if women aren't giving off signals that they want to be pursued. And, and I think that that world is coming to an end. I, I, I don't think 
the play hard to get strategy advocated by books like the rules is going to work going forward. Yeah. I know you go into, you know, some suggestions that you have, especially for women related to how they can, you know, deal with uh, the modern environment, given a lot of the details that that we talked about. And I want to get into that. I also want to get into, and I, I would love to get your thoughts on this because in, in my reading of your work, it, it sounds like to me that, you know, you are, trying as best you can to provide options and ideas for people, mostly women, to be able to navigate this environment where there are millions and millions more college-educated men than women. And I, I think probably at the heart of the disagreement between you know, somebody like you and David Buss would be you know, his vantage point looking at dating through an evolutionary psychology lens. And I know this is a very popular phrase on, you know, on the internet, and I, I know you have spoken about this as well. The, the issue of hypergamy, which is the the tendency for women to mate and date up and across hierarchies, and from David's perspective, and I haven't talked to him about this issue specifically. I would imagine his primary concern is that for women, intelligence and resource allocation or the likelihood for resource alloc allocation <clears throat> maps onto intelligence and education and that that is a significant barrier to entry for a lot of guys who don't match them on their intelligence and their you know edu educational credentialing i would bet roughly speaking that would be his perspective and i know just in reading and learning about your ideas that you don't necessarily share that view but if before before we get to your ideas about what you think can be done given this 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 sort of the situation, if David is correct hypothetically, what does that mean for the future of of dating and mating in our country specifically? Well, he's not correct, so I can't really answer that. I mean, I mean, he. I, David Buss, like other kind of celebrated evolutionary biologists who kind of who are associated with this subject, you know, Jeff Miller, Steven Pinker, Don Simons, they're all basically acolytes of a gentleman named Robert Trivers. Um, do you know who Robert Trivers is? is I don't that know that name. I know the others, but I don't know him. Okay, so so Robert Trivers is basically considered to be the the preeminent evolutionary biologist of his of his generation. And um, he kind of built on this idea, which you just alluded to, you know, initially put forth by Darwin that um, that males, you know, that, that males are kind of hardwired to chase multiple females in order in the hopes of maximizing offspring. And, um, you know, Trivers, when he was like a young grad student, um, well, actually, you know what? But before I go into Trevor's research, which again, Bus and all the others, all their research is built on on Trevor's. But I just want to give you a sense of of the kind of human being we're talking about here before I get into what Trevor's findings were. So, you know, um, here's how Robert Trevor's justified accepting research funding from Jeffrey Epstein. Quote, by the time girls are 14 or 15, they're like grown women were six, um, 60 years ago. So I don't see these acts as so heinous. So, so th th this is the kind of person we're talking about. This is who, uh, um, who 
folks like David Buss and, and Steven Pinker and Jeffrey Miller are, are building their research off of. And, you know, it, the probably the, the, the best book on this subject is, is not, is not my book. It is, um, uh, the, oh, what is her name? Um, there's Angela Saini. She's a, a science writer out of, out of London. She wrote a book uh, called Inferior, which basically, it, you know, the, the whole point of the book is to debunk all these ideas that that men are hardwired for X and women are hardwired for Y, and that and that when it comes to dating and mating, women are hardwired to be passive filters of male advances, and men are hardwired to be pursuers. And you know, if you look at Trivers as research um you know he um a, a lot of it is is built on this um this study of the behavior of fruit flies now now we can argue about whether the you know the sexual behavior of fruit flies really has anything to do with with human behavior but let's just pretend it does and you know he he uses this fruit fly study to sort of explain the behavior of other species. And in the fruit fly study, he found, or, or the, the study found that, that basically male fruit flies are pursuers and that female fruit flies are happy to mate with multiple males and that 20% of males never actually find a mate because I guess they're the beta fruit flies it's it's this whole hypergamy idea that that that's become very very popular, um, and you know the the ideas of Trivers were as I said kind of built upon by Buss and Miller and Pinker and they became you know and all these other male evolutionary biologists and they became kind of accepted wisdom um, until uh, you know I think twenty years ago a a um, a, a woman scholar at, at UCLA, Patricia Gowati, became frustrated with with the you know the, the Trivers bus Pinker you know um, uh, ideology, and because she had been studying the mating behavior of eastern bluebirds. And what she found is that um, even though East, Eastern bluebirds were supposed to be monogamous or at least seasonally monogamous, the um, the female bluebirds were actually flying away at night to mate with other males. And when she presented her study, the Trivers acolytes claimed that the Eastern bluebirds in her study must have been raped. So Gawadi got fed up and she decided to redo this um, famous fruit fly study that all these hypergamy ideas were based on just to see if the fruit flies behaved exactly as all these male scholars claimed they had. Do you want to guess what she found? Go ahead. She found that the, the female fruit flies approach the males just as often as the male fruit flies approach the females. And the notion that there was this huge population of male fruit flies who were not mating was not correct at all. And she had videotapes showing that, you know, proving that this was the case. Um, and basically, I won't get into the details, but the errors in the original study were just so egregious that she was shocked that the whole thing was ever published. And when Angela Saini um, 
confronted Trevor's about this. And Trevor said, well, you know, Patty, that was that's how we, he described Patty, Patricia Gawani. You know, Patty's a, Patty's a good academic. She's probably right. So I, I guess my argument is that, that all of these ideas of hypergamy and of, of males being hardwired to chase and women being hardwired to be passive filters, it is built largely on junk science. Okay. Um, I, you know, I know I don't want to speak for David and Stephen and, and Jeffrey Miller. I, you know, my understanding about their research just in, you know, listening to them and reading them as somebody who's curious about trying to find out what is true about the world, you know, is cross-cultural human studies that I think David is known for pi pioneering in terms of what are the on average common themes that you tend to see in human specific dating strategies? And, you know, I know this is something that Helen Fisher mentioned a few weeks ago, which is that, you know, 90, 97% of mammals do not pair bond. Um, we are not one of them. And so, you know, I, my curiosity about, you know, hypergamy as it relates to the human animal, is largely aimed at what kind of future might be coming our way and you know wh whether or not it is true just as a hypothetical scenario and I, I certainly know that david is i think you've had conversations with him that that would indicate this is is confident that the research is fairly clear about this what the world would look like if if he if they are correct you know if if it is, and I want to give ample time to some of your ideas about, you know, I think you've, you've already mentioned this, the mixed collar dating um, and mating option for women. Um, but there is something potentially dangerous here that if, just from my perspective, if they are correct, might be happening. Kind of so, 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 you, so, so you believe men are hardwired to be X and women are hardwired to be Y, correct? I think, I think, you know, again, I mean, my understanding of the research is that it's, it's averages. So on averages, on average, yes, that there are, you know, in, tendencies that seem to bear out cross-culturally for men. And, and, and probably the underlying idea is that testosterone levels drive this universal behavior, you know, uh, differentiating men from women, right? I would imagine that's a, a key part of it. Um, you know, I know just in terms of the the rank ordering of priorities generally on average for men and women in terms of what they are interested in in the opposite sex, there is a lot of overlap. You know, so so, so what if I told you that the latest science actually shows that that um, that culture drives testosterone levels? I'm not an expert on this, right? I've talked to Carol Hooven, um, who who has you know, written her book exclusively about, about testosterone and it, you know, she would need to probably be here to give an accurate assessment of, I don't, I don't know if she was publishing that information. So, so the, the latest research shows that, that testosterone levels decline in men when they take on a more nurturing role and the testosterone levels rise in women when they take on more leadership roles. 
So this notion that men are hardwired to act a certain way and to be hunters and chasers of females and that women are hardwired to be a certain way, to be kind of passive filters of, of male advances, the, these are influenced by cultural constructs. They are not hardwired into our biology. And, and there are all sorts of cultures all around the globe, like the, like the Bajago people in, in Africa, which is a matriarchal society in which the women kind of control the economy and the culture and the women propose to men. Mm. Now, are they, are, uh, nobody's arguing that they are evolutionary in an evolutionary way any different from the rest of us, yet their culture has driven um, you know, different, different behaviors. And I, I am quite confident if you looked at the testosterone levels of Bajago men and Bajago women, it would show something different from what you find in China or Alaska. Um, so I, I, I think what where some of these these advocates of hypergamy get confused that they assume that that these these testosterone levels are kind of hardwired into our makeup when actually they are influenced by our culture and, and our environment. Yeah. I mean, I, I know from the conversation I had with Carol and the research I did for that conversation, testosterone level does seem to fluctuate in men and women. You know, I, I, it does. my understanding yeah. is that, at, you know, post, um, you know, if you're a man and you have just had a, a child with a woman, your testosterone level predictably goes down. That being said, um, you know, I remember Carol mentioning that there are no women in the world that have testosterone levels, even anywhere close to what men do. And that on average, it's 10 times the level of testosterone in a man versus a woman. So there are fluctuations, but and, and yet there are all sorts of species in which the males have higher testosterone levels, and yet the, the females are the more aggressive ones. I mean, like if you if you if you read, um, I forgot the name of the author, but it's a book called The End of Men, um, and you know she. I'm sorry, I forgot the author's name, but but she found a connection between higher rates of criminality among women and kind of testosterone levels and women becoming more dominant in their communities. So this notion that certain behavioral traits are only male or only female, and there's no fluctuation based on culture, you know, the, the science and the, and, and our, our world doesn't really reflect that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I would imagine they would agree with that. I, my, my understanding again is that on average, those prevail cross culturally. And so, so, so just without using the word hypergamy, yeah. what is the scenario that you're you're concerned about that I can that I can kind of address? Well, I, from my perspective, as Dan, Dan Dan Dennett has this phrase about evolution of it being a universal asset that it it applies to everything changes everything and yet keeps everything the same at the same time. And given our evolutionary history and given our nature um, as primates on earth, it doesn't surprise me given the fact that only one of two sexes are able to give birth that given the vulnerability of women for large swaths of time, that there is a filter 
and that there are there are evolutionarily influenced preferences for certain types of men. Um, to me, that that makes a lot of sense, and it, it it's explanatory on average why women have preferences for certain traits in men. The arguably the biggest thing. And, 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 and what's the fear? Like, what is this sort of this concern about where we're heading? Like, what, the, what's the problem? The, right. You start the book by by talking about a, co- a coworker of yours who was, I think, forty one yeah. at the time, yeah. right, and is extraordinarily accomplished, good looking, intelligent, and kind of baffled by the state of mating and dating in America. I think she was in New York city. Yep. And for, for women like of that description who you probably have major life goals that may include a family and, and marriage, they do tend, it wouldn't surprise me that the preference would have been to find someone at their level. And, you know, this is something that I have heard. This is one one of those ideas that I heard that really sparked my interest in this subject in general, that without maybe realizing it, as women are becoming more and more accomplished and are really kicking the butt of men in modern society in many ways, they're making their dating pool much smaller. And it's making it a lot harder for them to find the guys that they would want to be with because there just aren't that many that can compete with them. So, okay, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, that, that's, the, that's the, the basic gist of it. And I mean, we, at the beginning of this conversation, we were, I was reading out the, the numbers of just you know, college graduates and um, different age ranges in the country. And I, I think that's not a bad starting point for what kind of a, a problem we might be facing here. So, so let me, um, you referenced the woman whose story begins, kind of, I, the, the story I begin, I open datanomics with. Yeah. And um, she's a friend of mine and I can tell you how this story ended. Yeah. Um, this person is now a top executive at one of probably a fortune 50 company um she ended up having a child on her own the child is wonderful she's happy as a clam she's very happy with her life um and yes at the time i interviewed her she she had a certain idea of how her life was supposed to turn out but i guarantee you that if we had her on this podcast now she would have no regrets whatsoever and she is thrilled with her life as it is. Hmm. Okay. You know, I, I think, I think this is probably a good time to, to switch to, you know, your, your ideas and your suggestions for dealing with, with the current, um, the current environment for, for women, like, like your friend and coworker. I was thinking about another prior conversation I, I had with a woman named Daniel Crittenden um, who was the co-host of the Femsplainers podcast. And she wrote a book called what our mothers didn't tell us. One of the, one of her, I think primary, she's the mother of two daughters and a suggestion that I think she has propagated and, and has encouraged in her own kids is at least considering the idea from an earlier age 
in their, you know, even college mid twenties to take dating more seriously than might be, you know, culturally encouraged right now. Um, I think her, her general point there is that as you get older, you know, marriage and potentially having a family is very likely to be at least as important or possibly more than the growth of your career in your career success. And that, that was her vantage point on this. Have you ever read um, Meg Jay's book, The Defining Decade? No, I don't think so. So she's a psychologist and her conclusion is very similar. It's, it doesn't just apply to dating though, but it's similar to what you just expressed. And her belief is that our 20s are our defining decade. Yeah. And that there's been a trend over the past generation or so to start to kind of delay adulthood and to put off big decisions about what we want to do with our lives professionally, romantically, where we want to live, when we want to have kids. And her argument is that the 20s really are our defining decade. And these are decisions that need to be made earlier, not later. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I think I agree with this conceptually, although I always like to include the caveat that I do not believe marriage is for everyone. Um, I do not believe heterosexual marriage is for everyone. I know lots of people like my friend who I just referenced, who are very happy being single. And in the end, probably are happier remaining single than they ever would have been marrying some of the guys that they have been dating. So I, I think when I frame this advice, I always like to say it's it's not advice for every woman. It's advice for hetero women who put a high priority on marriage, which is absolutely positively not everyone. Yeah. So just putting that out there. So yes, I, I agree with this notion that there is an advantage both psychologically in terms of our, our who, how we develop as people and as humans to prioritizing romance and marriage younger. Um, and there's also a statistical advantage. I mean, if you, if you read Datanomics, you probably, you probably, do you recall my, um, my musical chairs comparison? Yes. Does that yes. ring a bell? So I'll just for your listeners, I'll, um, the, the, Anybody who played musical chairs as a child probably remembers that in the first round, when there's 24 players or 24 chairs and 25 players, basically only the kid who's not paying attention doesn't get a chair, right? Like it's the kid who, who you know, who's whatever. But so, so in the first round of musical chairs, 24 chairs, 25 players, you have essentially a 4% chance of losing. By the last round of musical chairs, when there's one chair and two players, you have a 50% chance of losing the game. And there's something similar going on in the dating world. So if you start out with a dating market, like a micro dating market with 40 women and 30 men, which is essentially what college grads have been graduating into over the past 10, 20 years, um, once once half of the women get married, once 20 of the women marry 20 of the men, the the sex ratio among the remaining singles becomes 20 women and 10 men. So you've gone from a four to three ratio to a two to one ratio. Once five more women get married to five more men, it becomes 15 women to five men. 
So the longer you remain single in a lopsided dating market, if you're the sex in the majority, um, the harder it becomes. And this is why I know, and maybe you know, all these incredibly fabulous women in their 30s and 40s who you know, look like they might have been supermodels and are probably in uh, like uh, they're wonderful company, wonderful people. Um, and you and nobody from their moms to their friends can understand why they're still single. Mm-hmm. And, and I think th- this this musical chairs math has a lot to do with why dating becomes so much harder for educated women as they age. It's not because they're because of their looks, because I get, a lot of these women I know, mm-hmm. I, I, I would be surprised if they were better looking at 22 than they were at 42. Um, so, so yes, I, I agree with this idea that there's a, a value both in terms of, of psychology and uh, the way we develop as human beings to, to taking romance seri- more seriously when we're younger. And there's also a, a statistical advantage for women. Yeah. I, I know in a- another you know, potential suggestion that you have for women in, in make your move is related to their, you've alluded to this a little bit already, but their, their approach to men in general, you know, not, not only just being, you know, amenable to conversation with guys, but also potentially being more assertive. Talk to talk about that. What, what are your thoughts on that as a subject? So I, like uh, about a year ago, I did a, um, uh, I gave a, a talk to a college group at Rollins College in Florida. It was a, it was a Zoom thing. And um, Rollins, for its graduating seniors, has kind of a, a um, I don't know what they call it, like a, a life lesson class. or It's basically you know, everything from career stuff to financial planning to relationships, kind of like a, I think life launch is what they call it, the life launch class. And I knew... The, the professor is an English uh, professor who I knew, and she asked me to speak to her class about the dating part of this. And um, at one point, you know, I, I have very negative, t- a very negative take on online dating, which we can talk about maybe, yeah. you know, to come. But um, there was one woman in the class who asked me, okay, I, I understand why you don't like online dating. None of us really like it either. But how am I supposed to meet somebody if not through the apps? So, so I posed this question to the class of like 40 kids. And I said, okay, raise your hand if there's somebody you already know and like in the real world whom you've ever wondered about dating. 40 kids in the class, 40 hands went up. They already knew somebody who they thought they were compatible with. So if you're a woman, why the heck would you sit back and wait and wait and wait and wait for the guy that you think is the one or maybe the one or the one just the guy you feel really comfortable with and have a good chemistry with? Why would you wait for him to realize that you like him instead of just saying, hey, Phil, hey, Dan, um, I really like you. Let's go out for dinner on Friday. I, I just think there's a real advantage to being assertive and and to making the first move. And as I write in Make Your Move, um, making the first move is the only de- dating strategy ever to win a Nobel Prize, although I'm kind of playing a little bit fast and loose with the facts, but I can explain that if you'd like. Yeah. 
please do. What what is that story? So um, th- there were two economists who won the Nobel Prize for what they call matching theory. And matching theory isn't just dating; it's job applications, you know, college admissions, grad school admissions. And I'm not going to go too deep into the nitty gritty into the into the esoteric math. But what they found is that whoever initiates the match, on average, has a better outcome. What are the other strategies that you would suggest? You know, I, I, my understanding is that you have three sons. Um, you know, if, if you had a young daughter who was coming up, maybe about to graduate from college, what, what kind of suggestions or other insights would you offer to, to her to, you know, be clear and wise about thinking about these subjects? Well, I will say my, my, my three sons hate, the, you know, they're not fans of, uh, of me chiming in on this and uh, also one of them is gay and he's like you know he 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 thinks the whole thing is in his words creepy but but that's another 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 topic um so i as i said i think there's a big advantage to to making the first move i i do believe that most singles particularly younger singles already have somebody in mind who they like and uh, and as a result, I think relying on dating apps is just a huge mistake. I mean, the the research on dating apps shows that the um, the divorce rate for couples who meet on dating apps is six times higher than it is for couples who meet in the world, real world. There was a study out of Stanford University, a professor named Michael Rosenfeld. Um, and Rosenfeld is generally often quoted as being an advocate of online dating. Yet, if you look at in, in the appendix of his study, um, there is a, a table in the, in the, the title of the table is breakup rates, not much influenced by how couples meet. Hmm. All I can say is Professor Rosenfeld and I have a very different definition of not much, because according to his own table, the one year breakup rate for couples who meet online is 16 hmm. percent for couples who meet through friends and family. It's nine percent for couples who meet as neighbors. It's eight percent for couples who meet as co-workers. And I'm a big fan of workplace dating. The, the breakup rate, one year breakup rate for couples who meet at work is six percent. Meet in college at six percent. And. The one-year breakup rate for couples who meet in a house of worship is 1%. Yeah. So, you know, I, 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 I've yet to meet, I'm sure they're out there somewhere, but I've yet to meet a single woman or a, a solitary woman who ever said to me, you know, John, I love online dating so much. The guys are so sweet and so honest. And I've just, you know, yeah, one experience is better than the next. Like, have you ever met a woman who said that to you? I don't think so. Do you think they exist? Every conversation I have, particularly with women and often with men about online dating, is it's a horror show. And but there's this kind of fear of missing out factor that 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 pushes people to sort of stick with the apps, even though even though Pew Research found that the majority of young women on dating apps consider online dating to be unsafe, and one in five have been threatened with physical violence while using dating apps. Mm-hmm. Now, if there were a, a singles bar in Brooklyn or in Austin, Texas, where 20% of women were being threatened with physical violence, like I don't think a lot of people would be going back to that place, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. I know. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I said, so, so my, you know, one of the big takeaways from my new book, make your move is to, to get off the apps and to go back to dating people you actually know. And that might, might involve some awkwardness and taking a chance with a guy who's always been kind of just a platonic friend. Um, but I, I, I believe there is great value in embracing the awkwardness and taking chances with people who you actually know you have some compatibility with because you actually know them from the real world. They are not complete strangers from an app. Yeah. You, you've, you just mentioned this, that I think you're a, a fan of um, you know, workplace dating and, yeah. and getting to know people to, that you date in, in, uh, in the real world, in, in a work setting. And, I've heard you speak about the courtship of Bill and Melinda Gates. They're, <laughs> yeah. they're now divorced. They're now divorced. Yeah. The, the story, I thought it was an apt observation that was made when you learn about the details of that story that, you know, this was such a 90s courtship that would potentially not really fly. And in modern world, I think this, this is connected to the Me Too issues that we've talked about. Um, what is the story about Bill and Melinda Gates? And, and what about it do you think is... Um, worth keeping in mind and maybe culturally bring back to some degree. So, so to me, I mean, just to, I'm going to give you the takeaway before I tell the story, but, but to me, it shows how, especially with workplace dating, it's going to be much easier for the woman to make the first move um, because it's more culturally acceptable. So, so the story of Bill and Melinda Gates, um, it comes courtesy of a podcast interview that, um, that Melinda um, Gates, Melinda Gates gave, I think, probably maybe twenty years ago, and um, she, it was it was the AOL Makers podcast. So, uh, you know, the, the, the AOL part probably dates it. <laughs> okay. Um, so the interviewer asked Melinda how they first started dating in 1987 and and she she this was just a few months after she'd been hired as a product manager at microsoft and according to melinda gates quote he said you know and i guess they, they had met at a company event and he and he said you know i was thinking that maybe we could go out um if you give me your phone number maybe two weeks from tonight that's what he said to her and Melinda did what any self-respecting 1980s woman probably would have done back then. And she played hard to get. So, quote, this is a quote from Melinda. I said to him, two weeks from tonight, I have no idea what I'm doing two weeks from tonight. And I said, you're not spontaneous enough for me. Bill, however, this is just me, me reading what I wrote in the book. Uh, Bill, however, would not take no for an answer. And this is a quote from Melinda. Quote, it was really sweet, Melinda recalls. He called an hour later and said, is this spontaneous enough for you? Now, I have to say, when I first heard the story um, in kind of a, as somebody who went to college in the 80s and dated in the 90s, it didn't sound so bad to me. And I actually, I, I know a woman my age who was at Microsoft at the time. And, when, and even though he might not look like Michael B. Jordan. Uh, Bill Gates was considered a catch, let's put it this way, by the, by the single women of Microsoft way back then, okay? So, so he was in demand. And um, so, so to me, this story sounds kind of sweet and harmless. But I think that's just because of my old guy bias. Um, 
what sounds sweet and harmless to me actually wasn't or isn't. Um, what we have here is a guy, a CEO of a company who wouldn't take no for an answer, who uh, uh, somebody who worked for him said no to going out on a date with him. And he called back an hour later to ask her again. Um, now, in her case, it's clear she was playing hard to get. And I guess all's well that ends well. But it's pretty clear why this kind of behavior would probably land him in a meeting with his general counsel today if it if it happened now. So so I think I mean I'm not um I I think this is the kind of story that is a story of the times. And I'm sure Bill and Melinda during their happier days probably repeated the story to friends all the time. And I actually do think these, these stories of how we meet are really important and, and they can provide kind of a, a mortar, so to speak, to the relationship. And this is why I think dating people you actually meet in the real world is so important because if you meet through an algorithm, you don't have these, these stories of destiny and fate that, that you can share and that become um, an important part of who you are and who you will become. But but I, I guess just back to your question, I, I, I do think what the way they, they met back then would not fly today and nor should it. Yeah. I, you know, you're right. It is a CEO. Technically speaking, it's a CEO calling up a subordinate, an executive, who had declined his yes. approach and and asking again and I'm wondering you know what you think the right strategy there should have been or for for men who you know have subordinates or or just coworkers coworkers in general how would you suggest in the modern climate that dance you know be be made yeah so so but both um like I don't think of Silicon Valley companies as being um, pioneers in human resources, but I actually think both Google and Facebook have hit upon the perfect solution to this problem. And when it comes to workplace dating, both Facebook and Google, and I'm guessing probably other companies have followed suit, they have a policy that, that that's basically, you can ask anybody out on a date once, but only once. Hmm. And any answer you get that's not yes is a no. So if, if Dan, if I ask you out on a date and you say, yeah, I'm busy on Friday, that's a no. And, and I could never ask you out again. And if I do ask you out again, I'm probably going to HR. Um, so, so to me, this is a way of allowing the workplace romance to flourish. And I think it should because, you know, the research shows that 25 to 30% of, of, of workplace couples end up marrying. And that that doesn't surprise me at all, because if you date somebody you work with, you already know their character. I mean, you already know if you if your senses of humor mesh, you already know if they're a decent human being, like somebody who is cruel or dishonest in the workplace, I guarantee you is going to be cruel and dishonest in a relationship and somebody who is caring and um, and empathetic in, a, in the workplace is going to be that in a relationship. So, so I think you can learn a lot about people by working with them from nine to five or nine to 10, probably in <laughs> Silicon Valley. Um, 
So there's a lot of, to me, the workplace is a great place to meet somebody, but this policy that Google and Facebook have adopted of kind of, it's a way of eliminating the pestering. So I'm sure if you're a woman at Google, you probably get asked it all the time and uh, no, but but I'm sure that it's a, I'm sure it's a problem for some women. So if you don't say yes, at least you don't have to worry about the same guy coming back to you over and over and over again because it's you know it's against company rules. So I, I, I think I think this is an HR policy that Silicon Valley uh, may uh, may have right. Do you think that's the, and you may have just answered this, but do you think that that is the the reasonable, you know, um, rule of thumb? And uh, I, 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 I think it's a reasonable rule of thumb, but I also think it's much easier for the, you know, for the woman to make the first move. I mean, one of the, you know, there are a couple of fantastic love stories that I share in, in Make Your Move. I'm not going to give away too much, but one of them, you know, the woman, um, this was actually two people who I used to work with at a newspaper and she wrote him a long love letter. Um, and they're married with two kids today. Um, and, you know, so I, I think it's, I, I, I think just it's easier for the woman to take that sort of a chance because the, you know, like men are bigger and stronger and more physically intimidating. So sometimes if the, if the come on is unwanted, it can be intimidating for a woman in a way that it probably is less likely, not, not it's not impossible, but it's less likely to be for the man. Um, and I also think men are just so not used to women making the first move that it becomes intoxicating for some men. Yeah. I know we're getting towards the end of the conversation and I, I want to touch on you know, kind of the inverted, um, the, the, the other group, the, the group of, of people that are falling behind and that, that is men. And in many ways, the statistics we've read out today, um, the educational and professional achievements of women is an incredible victory in America for progress in opportunities for, for everyone. That being said, the numbers are pretty clear that men are falling behind. Um, you know, you, you've already mentioned this, that you're the father of three boys. What do you make of that? You know, I, it's a, a big general statement. And I want to do an entire episode with, um, you know, a, a real expert on the state of, of men and boys in America and what has brought us to this point. But in general, what is your take on what has happened to men specifically? So, so I, my take on this is, is built largely on, or is it, it's a mix of my own experience as a father of boys. And once I started reading the, the scientific literature, the academic literature on this topic, my basic response was like, no, like, 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 obviously, like the, the, the explanation is that it's not that girls have higher IQs than boys do. They don't. Um, boys and girls have similar IQs. The explanation is the girls' brains mature at a faster rate than boys' brains, not just intellectually, but socially as well. And as you can imagine, being responsible, being organized, um, 
that, that has a big impact on how you perform your schoolwork, right? So, and as a parent of three boys who have no shortage of female friends, and we have, you know, we have couples we're friends with with the girls. I, I'm not going out on a, a big limb here by saying that a 16-year-old girl or a 17-year-old girl is much closer to being an adult than a 15 or 16-year-old boy. Um, and I think having been a 15 or 16-year-old boy yourself, I'm sure this is pretty obvious to you, um, or maybe not. But but as a parent, it's pretty obvious. Like like like. There's a reason why we hire 16-year-old girls to be babysitters, but we don't hire 15-year-old boys to do it. It's because girls are more responsible. They mature. Their brains mature faster. I think girls' brains reach maturity at 20 or 21 or 22 years old, while boys' brains um, don't reach full maturity for another three years, something like that. Um, So to me, there is an a obvious solution, but in terms of public policy, it's not an easy solution. But the obvious solution would be to essentially redshirt boys. And by that, I mean, you you, um, you have boys start kindergarten at age six instead of age five, and girls would start at age five. So basically, um, you kind of delay by one year when boys begin school. And there's a lot of research showing that boys who are redshirted, so to speak, uh, make huge strides in terms of catching up academically to girls. Hmm. Let's say we were to implement that. We can't, but, but, but yes. Hypothetically, hypothetically, right. That I think you're right. I think that on average, you know, the, the characteristics that uh, map onto academic success, conscientiousness, you know, being organized, being diligent in general, probably favor women in their in playing to their general strengths. They, they, well, they, they certainly favor teenage girls over teenage boys. Yeah. And yet there are millions of men who, you know, wake up at 25, look around them and, you know, know that women that they might be interested in maybe lapping them in their credentials in their prospects for financial achievement and i have to imagine for a lot of those men that is extremely difficult to to recognize and and to recognize that the women that they might want to date and be with are not particularly interested in their trajectory in where they are in life. And, you know, I know we've talked about this already in the conversation, and I think this is something I wanted to get your, your perspective on, which is the, the possibility for, you know, cross collar, I think you call it or mixed, mixed collar dating, mixed mixed collar dating. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, go ahead. Just, just the, just to, put a bow on that, the, that, you know, if those men do wake up at 25 and they, they maybe not even graduated from, from high school, but they begin to get some ambition at, you know, some point in their twenties and they, they go to a a technical college and become, you know, an, an electrician. And I know you've said this in prior interviews that 
a lot of those men actually can make a ton of money. Yeah. Um, what, what is your, you know, your outlook on that as a possibility for something for, for men and women to keep in mind that might be a good match that these men that perhaps it takes them a little bit longer to, to launch, um, for, for dating and mating prospects across, across those callers. So, so I have like a, a weird contacts talking point for this subject. And, and, and that is, um, my youngest son for years and years was a, a, a travel baseball player. I don't know if you know that world, but, but it's kind of a, it's a, it's a funny world of, of, uh, <laughs> and I, I've also coached little league baseball for many, many years until this is my first year, not coaching, I think in eight years, something like that. And what I'll tell you about the travel baseball world is even though I live in kind of a leafy suburb, the, the travel baseball dads and coaches, it's much more mixed. It's a lot of these dads are cops and firemen or contractors where they run landscaping businesses. So even though I went to an Ivy league school and I live in a leafy suburb, I've gotten to know a lot of, you know, blue collar ish guys through the travel baseball world. And I have a couple of them in mind in particular who I know make a heck of a lot, a heck of a lot more money than I do. You know, they're contractors. One of them runs uh, an extremely successful landscaping business. You know, I think he owns like several hundred acres in upstate New York where he takes his kids hunting in the, you know, in the weekends. Um, so this notion that if you didn't go to college, um, you're, you know, you, you're poor. I, I, I think, I, I think it's kind of a, a misguided idea. And the other thing I'll tell you about these guys is that they're, they're awesome. Mm. Um, they're fantastic fathers and, you know, they're, they're really good husbands. Um, I guarantee you they're much more likely to be able to like fix the dishwasher or change the oil in the car than they're much more handy than, than I am, or maybe you are. Um, um, and, and I think, look, as we alluded to, I think we're in kind of an environment in which particularly people who go on dating apps, they check off the college box because they assume that's who they're supposed to be with. But I, I feel this fading away a little bit. And um, I think you know, there's a lot to be said for, you know, opening up your dating world to men who aren't or women who aren't exactly like you are. And you might find there's a lot more chemistry, a lot more compatibility with those guys than with like the insufferable banker at Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so that's my, you know, that, that's my, uh, my advice on this topic. Very good. Um, I know we're almost out of time and, um, I want to say thanks for, for doing this and, and giving me so much of your time to go over a lot of, I think, really important ideas and, and issues. And I'd love to close maybe by asking you about, you know, the, the future, you know, given the state of affairs in maybe America specifically with mating and dating, are you hopeful? Are you optimistic? What's your, what's your take on how you think things might unfold? I mean, I, I I'm I'm hopeful when it comes to the gender ratio stuff because I do believe that we're moving towards an increase in mixed collar dating and I think that will solve a lot of these problems. 
I'm extremely worried about the rise of online dating because I do not believe, you know, going out on dates with complete strangers is likely to lead to lasting romance. And we already see this in the, in the marriage data and the breakup data. So I'm, I'm worried about this trend of dating people you don't actually know. Yeah. John, thank you so much for this and for your work. Um, uh, You know, I think a a lot of, a lot of society and culture kind of pivots on on dating. It's kind of the the very foundation of our civilization. And, and uh, I think the ideas you bring up are really important. So thanks so much for doing this and, and talking at such length. Dan, thanks for having me on the pod. You got it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.